You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. It's a pleasure to introduce both Jim Breyer and Chris Larson. Jim Breyer is Managing Director of Excel Partners, and in this role, he has led 25 companies through successful IPOs or acquisitions. He's a great friend of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, and each year we ask him to interview one of his top entrepreneurs in this lecture series. Last year, he brought Mark Zuckerberg, founder and CEO of Facebook, and today he's brought Chris Larson, founder and CEO of Prosper. Prior to starting Prosper, Chris was the founder and CEO of eLoan. In both of these companies, he's worked to democratize the lending process. So, without further ado, welcome to Jim Breyer and Chris Larson. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Um, this is going to be very interactive, so I'm <coughs> cold call Tom Byers, I promise. Um, you cannot be doing emails over there, but uh, this, is, this should be a lot of fun. And... Uh, just a show of hands, I asked this last year when uh, Mark Zuckerberg was our guest. Uh, we'd invested about six, seven months earlier uh, into Facebook. How many have heard of Prosper.com and actually seen the website? How many in the audience? How many have borrowed money on Prosper.com? How many have been, a, how many have participated in the lending process? All right. So uh, what I hope is a year from now, the percentage of you who will uh, be really intrigued and active participants in the Prosper marketplace uh, might look a little bit like what uh, the activity might be on Facebook a year later. And so a show of hands, how many of you have actually been on Facebook and are registered users on Facebook? Who is not on Facebook out there? Raise your hands. All right. Well, it's an open marketplace now. Everyone can join, and that's the last uh, I'll say about that. So, Chris, the first question, uh, you and I have talked. Being an entrepreneur in a startup Internet company, uh, with all due respect to everyone in the audience and elsewhere, is the single hardest job I know. Absolutely the single hardest job. And so why were you crazy enough, after Elon, to start again and want to do this again? Uh, so that's a great question. Uh, sometimes I wish I had taken off uh, you know, a year or two uh, in between. Actually, we sort of overlapped. So we sold the loan last uh, November for uh, $300 million. So that was uh, moderately uh, successful. You know, obviously, uh, that's quite a bit down from the peak high in 99 uh, when we went public. Um, but it was a good return. You know, it worked out uh, very well. Um, we actually started this company about a year before that. So there's a little bit of an overlap. And um, yeah, it's just a great time to be starting a business. So we could kind of see, you know, there was that real desert drought in sort of, uh, you know, 01 to 03. You sort of had hints of it heating up again in 04. That's about when we started, started looking into starting Prosper. And, uh, you know, we just, there's a lot we learned from Elon that we wanted to, you know, express in a, in a more pure model. Elon was, was a great model. It was very pro-consumer. It was sort of a distribution, classic 1.0 company. Mm -hmm. um, but it never had the marketplace dynamics of an eBay. And we always thought, gee, why can't you just start an eBay for money? That was sort of the ultimate, totally bypassed the capital markets, which are really the source, while they're efficient on the front end, where the people trade money, it's a completely corrupted, anti-consumer, really a poisonous process for consumers. It really abuses a lot of people. 
And uh, we just thought, look, just do an end run around this. You don't need the capital markets to kind of distribute money anymore. And beyond that, you could really get sort of a microfinance element where it was more than just ROI, you know, uh, making a good return on your money, lending it to people, but also expressing other, you know, kind of uh, double bottom line, triple bottom line, whatever uh, someone wanted, you know, to express in, 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 the, in the money markets, which just seemed like a, a lot more freedom and sort of economic democracy, which is all, you know, what Silicon Valley is all about. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Right. So that part of it. Democratization of credit. Yeah, that part is fun. I have to say. So what you might do for the audience, what's remarkable about Prosper is, as the company is described today, it is absolutely identical to how Chris described it in the fir very first meeting we had. And so there's an unbelievable amount of organizational learning, constant learning and iteration that's occurring. But the core vision and the core proposition is exactly the same. And maybe describe how you came to that original vision, what your original vision was, and how you've implemented it today. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say, you know, we, we pitched Jim basically on a concept. So we did not have a working prototype. We didn't have regulatory approval, and regulatory was just enormously complex. And I mean, you guys really took a, a, a chance on us. We didn't have a name actually. We were sort of actually in a naming dispute. We got very lucky with Prosper. Um, so these guys really it was a leap of faith uh, when they invested and when they saw the pitch and. Once we got the money, it's like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> so now we got to do it. Now you tell me. Um, so, but, um, but we were lucky. I think we worked really hard. We, we laid out the regulatory idea first before we did the technology, and that was essential in this market, which is so extraordinarily complex as far as roadblocks that the big banks and the capital markets, for some for good reasons, some for you know, purely corrupt reasons, have put in the way of people just trading money. And so the vision was just anybody here, any American who had 50 bucks should be able to trade that money to someone who's looking for money. Kind of simple, but if you look at the capital market, the, the consumer credit markets in America, kind of in the whole world, they are very protected markets. They are walled off from people. So, you know, you're making 5% at ING, you're paying, you know, 19% at Capital One. Why can't you guys get together and sort of work something out and make 13 or something on both, both sides? Um, so that was really the vision. Very simple, eBay for money, uh, and then, and then put a groups concept in there. So we really wanted to capture the social networking trend, which we thought would capture what's going on in micro-lending, and, and kind of going on with the, the original American capital market system, the early, you know, Bailey savings and loan, you know, the Jimmy Stewart thing, you know, where, where does your money come from? It comes from your neighbor. So why is that a good thing? Because you feel a sense of shame and responsibility that goes beyond just your credit score, which the capital markets pretty well destroyed in, in America. Now, that's not to completely, you know, say capital markets are bad. They did some great things. They, they, they developed diversification and uh, liquidity, good for lenders. So the, the idea here was how do you capture the best of American capital markets, liquidity, diversification, and combine that with this sort of social networking, which is really just a throwback to communities where shame, accountability uh, really uh, drove good behavior uh, and, and kind of mash those together. Because at the end of the day, the dilemma here was how do you get diversification of money and familiarity of money? They sort of work against each other. And sort of the group's concept, social networking, was a great solution, which was only sort of possible about the time Facebook was being developed, not at the time eLoan was being developed. Um, so kind of using the new sort of technologies. And some opening up of finance, PayPal opened up lots of doors mm -hmm. with the ACH system, the way they move money electronically. 
um, convinced the banks, like Wells Fargo, to make a bet on, on uh, PayPal. Before that, you, again, back in the e-loan day, couldn't do that. Uh, credit scoring, uh, which now is transparent, uh, partly because we, we kind of, uh, e-loan fought some fights to get that uh, open to people. But that's an essential sort of measure of risk that the capital markets sort of used to, you know, use to judge people. Why can't people use that to judge people? Um, so that was sort of the vision. Again, but eBay for money at its, at its core, totally open, capitalism to the masses, but also get that sense of social responsibility. And it, 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 we got lucky, uh, I think, on some, some key things. Um, and we were able to, you know, convince Jim that we actually knew what we were doing from the start. <laughs> so. so take us through some examples today of the kind of marketplace you've built. Uh, what are some good examples of different kind of loans that are being completed? Who are the lenders? Uh, what kinds of borrowers are active? Um, the growth has been terrific, so I feel really great about that as a board member and investor, but it's the, uh, the personal grassroots stories which I think are really compelling. So yeah, um, take us through some of those. Yeah, and, and we really want to cover the entire spectrum of, of credit. So our call here is that across the spectrum, whether you're you know, somebody who can get credit anywhere, whether you're sort of in the middle, whether you're an immigrant who has no credit score at all and has a really tough time, you should be able to get sort of better economics because you're, we're trying to take out all the steps that go from sort of deposits up to the cap markets and then back down as loans to people. Again, you don't need that function in an internet world. It's just a matter of time before that sort of uh, crumbles away. Um, but so we think the use case is very broad. But some of the cool things are sort of like, you know, organic farmers that might be able to say, hey, I want to raise $10,000 for my organic apple farm, for example. And we've had some good examples of farmers, organic tea company. And then actually anybody can bid. So, the, so picture now the customers of that product, of that organic food, and you, you think about the sustainability movement, you know, here is a way to participate directly in sort of the way capital gets allocated to good uses. So not only are you making a good return, but you're, you're able to go, you know, I want to support organic farmers. And now those customers are throwing 50 bucks. You know, the way it works, it's a one-to-many auction. So $10,000 for the borrower might be coming from 100 different people throwing 50 bucks in there, making maybe 12% or whatever, depending on the credit score or depending on their own market determinations. Um, so that's kind of, a, those are neat examples. A lot of small business that maybe can't get loans. It's too early. Uh, immigrants, for, again, for, who don't have any credit history, but in those cases, get together in groups. Like, you know, we have a great example of Vietnamese American uh, group, um, which has a perfect record, uh, regardless of various credit you know, grades that are in that group. Um, and now is able to, what, what they're essentially doing is saying, okay, the individual doesn't have credit, but as a group, we sort of get together, we prove to the market that we're reliable, and now money just flows like it would from the capital markets to that sort of micro-affinity group. Uh, and that works, and um, that's, that's pretty cool stuff. So it's just sort of building more of the same of that, those type of use cases. But, but again, we're, we're really trying to be an infrastructure that just sort of builds this you know, servant infrastructure, very, very different from eLoan, where we were the product, we pushed the product, classic 1.0, and really say, you know, this is people who are making the product. We're there just to build the tools to help you communicate, engage in commerce, and inform communities. I think that's sort of the new way that companies are being successful, which also drives some of the key acquisition. We can get into that, too, if you want. But it drives fundamentally, I think, better acquisition costs, uh, in our case, default costs, and, of course, processing costs. 
You bet. So we have a lot of students in the audience, undergrads, graduate students. Take us through some examples you're seeing on the site relative to how students, graduate students, uh, are thinking about loans and some of the examples as well as uh, alums and so on um, who are looking right. to lend to that kind of audience because I think that there are so many micro communities where there is deep affinity on the part of lenders uh, and these are not institutions, these tend to be uh, personal lenders, uh, I'm one of them, uh, and trying to bring together the lenders uh, with causes that matter where people might be very interested in taking a little bit of a lower rate but because of the personal experience it's extremely satisfying on all sides. Maybe take us through some of that. Yeah so for example alums of, of Stanford Business School or, or the engineering uh, school can say look I want to lend to people but I only want to lend to those other you know Stanford Business School groups that form Let's you know, not forget the undergraduate. Or the undergraduate, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so uh, you know, again those groups are formed uh, by people so any student can you know go to the site create a group for you know not only the school of engineering or but specifically maybe a a small part of it a small subset a small project of you know as little as uh, you know two or three people that are sort of getting get it together collectively and then any anybody with money can sort of identify oh that's a good use case so not only do i want to make a good return but i want to aim my money right at those people um, sort of supporting your community um, so uh, that's satisfying for people. Again, not only return, but sort of getting that double bottom line. Um, and it should get better economics to that group because now money can kind of flow there. Rather than the way the system works now, which is a passive system, where money sort of goes into an account, some banker decides where it goes. You sort of, you've separated people from connecting money to the human things that happen with money. And, and actually, one of the cool things about the site is people describe it as sort of a combination of online dating, online gambling, and online stock trading, which we love. Yeah, we love that because um, you get upset. It's not just money. It's there's something. There's a connection going on of uh, you know that's human, uh, and that's a that's a good thing. And I think sites need things for people to do fundamentally, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to just have a place where uh, here's some money and do something with it. That's boring. Uh, you can do that already, um, but where you can do stuff, you can judge people. You know, every time a payment is made. You feel like, oh, they, they, they return the, the trust I had them. Every time they don't pay, it's like, God damn, what the hell are you guys doing? You know, you get emotionally involved. And, um, and then if you can reflect that behavior in a marketplace, transparency, that's going to drive good, uh, efficient markets. So we have a wonderful focus group in here. Uh, so particularly for the potential borrowers or current borrowers in the audience, if you were borrowing money through something like Prosper Marketplace, and instead of borrowing from a bank or institution, you were borrowing to go uh, spend six months studying in Japan, for instance, uh, and you borrowed directly from a Stanford alum, how many people would be more likely to pay back that loan? I'll ask you to raise your hand. How many wouldn't care? You have the money. And then how many people think, well, I might be less likely to pay the loan because I have an interaction. How many people would be more likely to feel like that loan is a real commitment and I'd pay it back? Raise your hand. How many wouldn't really care? It's a bank. doesn't matter if it's an alum. Anybody less likely? 
Well, that's pretty good. It looked like it's about a 75, 80% uh, show of hands in terms of being more likely to pay back the loan. Uh, that is the fundamental premise. That's good news. If it would have gone the other way, mm-hmm. we would have been worried. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, the funda- that is the fundamental premise of uh, what we're doing from the borrower's side and what, what Chris's intuition, I think, was so unique around. Uh, the fundamental premise is when there is that personal relationship, uh, not only are you going to feel better about paying back that loan and you're going to do everything you can to do it, but the other piece, which we hope will result in some viral activity, uh, for lack of a better phrase, if you're really happy about that loan you just took out to allow you to go uh, study in Japan for six months or a year, you might also tell your friends who are also thinking about that, that this is a great way to borrow. And that word of mouth, we're beginning to see some evidence that that's really working. And that, I think, is from the borrower's side, uh, one of the things that's so exciting mm-hmm. about what you're doing. Yep. Yep. So what over the last year have been the hardest days and the days where you've sat back, there are always these days, and you think, why did I do this? Or, oh my God, this is bad news. Or, can't believe that uh, we're immersed in this and we're, uh, we're going to hit the wall or if we don't fix this fast, something could go wrong. Maybe take us through the last year, I guess it's a year and a half since we invested. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe what are some of the dark moments and how did you as an entrepreneur deal with that? How did you think through uh, what might need to be done? Yeah, well, I mean, think about uh, a new business, I think, a startup, which is kind of fun, uh, you know, if, but, you know, the, within the same day, you sort of, I'm on top of the world, total victory, we're just going to kill it, we're going to make, you know, whatever, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. That same day, it's, uh, this is never going to work, we're, the, we're, we're dead, you know, uh, what were we thinking? Um, you know, it's really an emotional roller coaster, which, again, is fun, but, uh, but certainly here, the, you know, the regulatory risk is really high. So I think the, we, uh, we had a, a day there, we had a trim, we've been really lucky with the press. So we've gotten press, enormous amounts of press, which is great. Um, I think we were profiled uh, in, in one paper and then that was great, we're celebrating, we can see you know, the things taken off. And then within about uh, 20 minutes, we get a call from a regulator who you know, had approved our, what we're doing, but sort of had read about it and, oh, that's what they're doing. You know? <laughs> so, um, and uh, it came with a site inspection. You know? Uh, you know, without notification, and spent about a week there in our office going through things, and uh, and and took about four months to get back to us with the results. Uh, and we could have been shut down at any time. And uh, you know, that's pretty scary. Um, certainly, we had a very tragic day with our first uh, chief marketing officer, who was uh, tragically injured in a, in a just a freak explosion right by our office. Uh, and uh, and she was okay, but it was uh, it was a real trying time for the company um, and definitely sort of uh, those were those moments you know as far as the leadership of the company where you need to respond appropriately you know you need to show the right amount of empathy for the team we, we care about our people we need to demonstrate to the whole team you know how you're taking care of that person uh, but you can't sort of get off your 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 game either you know otherwise it looks like you're shaken so um, you know, I think that, that was a trying time to you know, find that right balance. The team was very new. We had just moved in. Yeah. Uh, we started the company in my dining room and then uh, tried to, we got the money. 
We're actually about the view in the dining room is pretty which nice. Is very nice. So it wasn't such leave. a bad place to start. Though. My wife had to kick me out, saying, <laughs> so "Go get an office." But uh, that was about two months. That was great. We're not burning any money. This investors think we're super responsible. It's always good to keep them thinking that as long as possible. Um, and then we moved into this office. It was great. And literally within two weeks, this tragedy happened. And it was the first time all the engineers were together. And uh, so that was a test. And we actually strengthened the company. So it was actually good, but it was very trying time. Uh, you know, and then you're hearing about competitors. We have a competitor in the UK uh, that is trying to come to the US. We share a common investor, so that's kind of annoying. Um, you know, why they invested in both. It's way. not them. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it was the benchmark. But, you know, the benchmark guys on our side were terrific. It's just there's, a, there's another fund in the UK that had sort of simultaneously uh, funded uh, that company. But then they announced they're coming to the U.S. Now, that's really, that's really obnoxious. So, um, you know, they uh, set up shop uh, a few blocks away. Uh, and you, you're always reading stuff about what they're going to do. Uh, you know, the ups and downs. Uh, no, we're, feel, we're feeling pretty good about our competitive position. Uh, the regulatory is a big, it's a big pain, but it's a big, um, I'd actually encourage you to look for those industries Absolutely. that have some really tough regulatory hurdles, because when you get through them, it really puts some distance between new uh, people coming around. Uh, it's probably two years, you know, uh, lead time uh, if people read about us and say, hey, I'm going to start that, versus some of these, you know, um, uh, companies that are more like products. Or features, which are, are pretty, fa you can you can do those pretty fast. So uh, yeah, those are some of the bigger ones. Yeah. I really want to get back to the regulatory issue because in Silicon Valley, for all of the virtues of startups here, uh, and it's the last three months, I was telling Tom Byers, uh, we certainly are seeing now a lot of business plans where it's YouTube meets X, Facebook meets adult entertainment, you name it, <laughs> crazy stuff. Uh, but there's just no doubt in a, lot of, in a lot of cases we ask people, well, what do you think your defensibility is? How much of a lead do you think we have? Uh, and they'll come back and they'll say, well, we, we think we have a two-month lead. And I step back and I say, it is changing pretty darn fast. And so that defensibility uh, through regulatory constraints is something that is rarely looked at here in Silicon Valley, I'm struck when I go back to Boston or in other parts of the country, uh, we do see more startups and more entrepreneurial ventures where people are looking for discontinuities within the regulatory structure or thinking about taking that on. And maybe talk about that and how you, uh, you learned from Elon, uh, but then you took on a very significant task in, term, in terms of having to go state by state, on and on, and maybe take us through a how you got comfortable with that and what that has meant from a company point of view. Yeah, um, I guess a couple things there. One, I think we took a lesson out of the PayPal sort of experience. And PayPal, I think, was famously uh, you know, aggressive in, uh, in, in their regulatory strategy, I mean, on purpose. And they definitely, that's why they won against the you know, Citicorp and some of the other, um, and the eBay, uh, you know, kind of a version of that. Um, so we were very deliberate about that. We thought, look, you know, if you get a really good, get some really good attorneys, we, we brought on a, a general counsel right away. That was as important as the CTO in our case. So I actually brought him, uh, my uh, general counsel from Elon, um, just a black belt in the area, none better. And uh, it was a real creative legal guy. So, um, you know, regulators won't tell you what, you're, what you can do. I mean, you can go to the SEC and say, what do you think about this? Rarely are you going to get a, a no-action letter, especially in these new categories. 
But what you can hope for is they're not going to shut you down right away. And in many cases, that's good enough. So get some good attorneys. You can get you know, their opinions. You know, arm yourself. You need that to then take to the first question Jim's going to ask, can you do this? Um, and again, that's why we had to have that, that legal regulatory thing fixed first. I think Jim knows, everybody knows the, you, know, you, you guys are going to probably figure out the technology, right? But can you do the regulatory? That had to come first. And I think that was a key lever in getting, getting a good valuation, getting it off the ground as a concept, attracting our team. Um, and uh, then I think with, with some of the other experience at Elon, um, we had worked a lot with consumer advocates. The consumer advocates have a big influence on the regulators. At the end of the day, if you're doing something that's good for consumers, regulators will give you a lot more leeway, definitely, than if you're trying to really push things, screw people, especially in financial services where you know, most of the new innovative startups are run by crooks. I mean, these are really, really bad people doing bad things. So if you can introduce something like a PayPal or you know, something that's very positive, um, that's going to go a long way. And you can use that to, to good benefit. So how did you then uh, think through, um, you're going through this prolonged process of dealing with regulators. Uh, you're doing it in all the right ways. You're going through the bureaucracy. We're all getting fingerprinted at board meetings, <laughs> the whole bit. It's true. Yeah. Um, We're going to lift you, the fingerprints off that exactly. bottle of water when he's down here. How do you and did you get comfortable that there wasn't some end around that someone very entrepreneurial could just say, we're not going to go through all that. There must be other ways to address this. There are other ways to build social marketplaces. Uh, and we don't really need to go through what Prosper has done for the last 12 to 18 months and spend all that money in that time. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And, and definitely when you're in the uh, conceptual stage, uh, kind of really early on, when you start getting kind of cuckoo at night, you know, I mean, really, you really get kind of suspended from reality, which is a good thing. I mean, every business needs that period of total reality suspension, right? Otherwise, you'll never get through it. And you're going to listen to people that will give you really good sound advice, and you'll go, you're right, can't do it. So, um, but we almost got, uh, some of the things we were thinking about, the really crazy ideas of doing away with money. There's some really bizarre social networking ideas around the exchange of money that sort of uh, revolve around doing away with money. There's a couple of them on the web. And we were sort of looking at those going, wow, are they on to something? Or are they, these people insane? You know, are they just sort of anti-capitalists? And um, that was probably the uh, part that, that sort of gave us pause. Are mm -hmm. we being too traditional? We're sort of an older group. You know, I'm 45. So, you know, it's like, God, are we missing something to those 21-year-olds like Mark, you know, was Zuckerman who was over here? Uh, you know, he's we just 22 not, now. Oh, he's 22. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, um, which I think is a valid concern. I mean, you guys, in some ways, you know, uh, you know, have a, a great advantage because you're seeing things fresh. You can't almost take it, take for granted uh, how we all get stuck in our ways. I think in, in some ways. So it was sort of like, are we missing that? Uh, because at the end of the day, we went a pretty traditional regulatory route, aggressive traditional, um, and you know, maybe still we miss something. So. Uh, uh, yeah, and that's a good thing to think about. That's something this area encourages. Uh, although, again, you can get really far off the track sometimes. So, so talk a little bit about the e-loan culture. Uh, you built a very successful company there, and then you had the opportunity to do it again and think through what kind of culture you really want to build based on very successful previous experience. Maybe compare the Prosper culture to what you had at Elon, 
Uh, how successful do you think you are in building a, a deep culture? How important is the culture to what you do? Take yeah. us through some of that. So super important because uh, that's what gets you through the tough times. You know, when Elon sort of the stock crashed, as you know, so many of them did. You know, you weed out all the mercenaries, and what's left are the real missionaries, the people that believe in the cause. So, getting those strong core values really takes you through the tough spots, and makes it fun too. It makes you know, it's so much better to stand up there at every weekly meeting and you know, really get passionate about what you're doing. Um, but the Elon culture was was more of a consumer advocate culture. Um, we were a distribution channel, so we only dealt with borrowers. So it was very squarely going up against the banks, really trying to contrast corrupt, bad banks, you know, bad things going on. We're sort of the clean, transparent, um, no win-lose type of structure, um, in a way, which was really good. It's a really, it's a really good-hearted company. In some ways, though, it took a little bit of the competitive edge off, I think. I think some, some of our competitors can mistake consumer advocacy for weakness. It's hard to get that right balance. And I'd say we probably, especially in financial services, maybe everywhere, getting that right combination of, uh, of red meat and advocacy is really tough. And you, and you really got to find that right line. I would say here at Prosper, we're, um, since we deal with both sides, borrowers and lenders, we have to be one more sort of a servants, more um, unbiased, um, and, and really kind of maybe a little bit more towards the red meat, and, and just sort of trusting, more libertarian, I, I think, than activist, um, which I think is a good thing. That sort of libertarian paternalism, um, basically free market, don't let people burn their houses down, um, but ma mainly veering towards a free and open market. We're also, uh, Elon was um, 800 people, our call center was in the, in, in the U.S. until pretty late in the game, um, which I, was a mistake, I think, honestly. Um, but uh, that gave us more of a blue-collar sense, in a way. So you had a lot more em employee issues. You had to run a more traditional type of a company. Sort of frustrating, to be honest with you. Um, Prosper is 24 people in downtown San Francisco with 18 people in the Philippines, uh, a group of four in, in uh, Bangalore. Um, it's more of a craft uh, we're trying to get this sort of craftsman mm -hmm. approach to quality of work. Love your craft. Um, so it, it, that's, a different, that's a different mindset. I think uh, we can be more selective in a way. Um, and maybe that's more of the model mm -hmm. today. So. And so talk about burn rate. Um, there are all types of different views of burn rate. Um, you've been through it. Uh, you've seen several cycles. You really want to know? I really do. Okay. Absolutely. Um, Chris has done a great job on this, by the way, so it's an easy question, but it's a remarkable thing because a guy like Chris, uh, I mean, we raised money quickly, successfully on a second round. There's a lot of money in the bank. Uh, we see most entrepreneurs, when they have that money, uh, they find ways to spend it, even mm. if they say they might not. Uh, you've done a great job, but why has it been so important for you to really manage that burn rate, keep it very low as you've built the business. You've spent no money on marketing. Maybe take us through that and what advice you would give, having been through cycles and, and how people should think, should yeah. think about it. Uh, it's probably the fear of what we all did during 99, 2000, <laughs> the uh, sort of land grab, uh, you know, where we were all spending like drunken sailors. And you were forced into it. You know, we, we did the $5 million Yahoo deal that brought in a million dollars worth of business. You know, it was like, what the hell were we thinking? And we were all celebrating that because it was a great, to be honest, it was good. I mean, it was a good press release. It, it led to <laughs> Goldman, you know, working with us for our IPO. It led to another round, which, 
you know, it kind of, it sort of made sense back then, but it's, it's, it's a reckless way to run a business. And, uh, and it was all about marketing. So I think, uh, you know, now uh, it, it's more of a focus on technology. I would say that's probably definitely the 2.0, uh, you know, uh, kind of element now. Uh, and try to find ways of virally uh, marketing. Um, you know, at Elon, we had to do, we went public in 99. We had to do a pipe, a private, uh, you know, kind of post-IPO round. That was so painful. We had to raise 40 million bucks because mm-hmm. the market had crashed. We couldn't do a secondary. Uh, we would have went out of business. We had probably a couple months runway. And uh, Schwab came up and invested and, and sort of saved the day. Uh, but that was incredibly uh, horrible experience. Never want to do that again. So getting enough money, uh, you know, kind of under your belt uh, to work through, you know, kind of the storms. This is a great time to raise the money now. That's why we raised the second round. Uh, we've got some great partners. But, uh, you know, being able to have that money in the bank to get through profitability, finding viral ways of spending, not depending too much on the Googles, which are really the crack right now of marketing. And those prices are really getting bid up, uh, especially in finance. Um, that's no way to build a business uh, these days. No, absolutely not. Uh, you've got to find some other route around that, or you're just going to be. It's the same problem with the portals in uh, 99-2000. So, uh, yeah, that's really key. So what I can say, and it, it sounds so easy, and in 95% of the cases it doesn't happen, I can't recall a board meeting where uh, Chris or the team said, uh, we have 12 or $15 million in the bank, and therefore we want 12 months of runway, and therefore we should spend X. Uh, every board meeting is about, here are the risks we've identified, here's what the business looks like, we're happy to lose a little bit of money, and we'll define it like that until we get visibility around some of these different, um, both market, technical, and regulatory risks, and there's a complete separation between what is raised and what's in the bank and what's the appropriate amount to spend. And I can't tell you how important that is and how rare it is to do that. I think that time and time again, I think of the companies that we've seen at Axel, Maybe it's just our portfolio. Who knows? But 95% of the companies, even if they say, we're going to go out and raise $25 million and we're not going to spend it quickly, the moment that money comes in, something changes. And so I think that it is the rare entrepreneur, Chris is one of them, who can completely separate the two. So the balance sheet's incredibly strong. Uh, We have the money. We know we're not going to run out of cash in the next 12 or 18 months, unless you tell me something I don't know. So we don't sit there and talk about uh, what we could spend. We only talk about what is the minimum amount we can spend to build the right culture, build the right set of milestones so that we really have visibility on the business. And I, uh, I, I see it time and time again. And now again, when it's easier for Internet, particularly consumer Internet companies, to raise money, there's just too much money being raised. It's, it's happening again. We as venture capitalists are very much part of the problem. Uh, if that money wasn't being spent, it would be much less of a problem, but we're seeing advertising, promotion, um, offline marketing budgets increase dramatically. And so there will be uh, a shakeup. There's just no doubt how many self-service video companies 
on the web do we need? Uh, and everybody, of course, thinks their portfolio company is the one that's going to win. Now, after YouTube, Google, uh, there's even more investment going into the category, which in some ways is counterintuitive. Uh, so Chris and uh, Prosper have done a really terrific job in that. So Chris, you're 45. So am I. <laughs> Uh, how do we uh, ensure that in a true 2.0 setting, uh, we are building the kind of social marketplace that absolutely hits the audience and the kinds of experiences that MySpace, Facebook, YouTube are addressing in such grassroots ways? Yeah. Um, I, Culturally, how do you do it? Yeah, I, well, I think it's also, it is the spending, so you don't find the sort of the easy way out. SEM now is sort of, I think, emerges the easy way out. Um, but you do find, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, it gets, it gets to a simple concept of, you know, there's a reason uh, beyond the sort of the immediate product that a person's interacting with your site, why they would want to share it with somebody else. And in our case, what we would hope for, for example, is, wow, I saw this great, you know, kind of loan listing for this organic tea company or whatever. Um, let me send this to my friend who I know likes organic tea. It's run by a you know, woman entrepreneur. Let me send it to you know, this woman entrepreneur's club and zip it over there with, so, hey, I invested 50 bucks in this. Why don't you, too, you know, also do that? Um, there's lots of opportunities for us to do things like that that are built into our model. One, you have to have a model that allows that. Um, and then, two, you need to get uh, people that understand that on the technology side, critically on the marketing side. That's the hardest thing is now finding... Uh, marketing folks now that understand that. There's so many great marketing people in our budgets, which will just kill your company uh, and can't think out of that way. Um, but at the same time, you need people that understand brands and, and understand the magic of marketing. It's really, really tough. Mm -hmm. um, but that's really what you have to strive for. And you need to get rid of people that um, you know, are just the wrong people on your team, which is, uh, it sounds easy, but uh, you know, that's a really hard thing. I mean, that's something we learned painfully the first time around. Mm -hmm. I think we've sort of fixed that the second time around. But um, really, really hard thing, getting the right team together, uh, especially in this environment now mm -hmm. where there's lots of opportunity. So we have a lot of international professors, faculty members in the audience. Maybe talk a little bit. We've talked about China, uh, where I tend to spend time, and we have seven partners in China. Um, We've talked less about Japan, Australia, other countries uh, in Europe. Maybe take us through when is the right time to start aggressively thinking about the international business for Prosper? How do you come at it? Uh, what are your initial thoughts in terms of how important it is to be an international company? Yeah, uh, critically important. Um, it's complex in our business because of the regulatory complexity, because every country is different. Um, so we, we know we have to do that. We're going to do that. Um, and Jim and I already had some discussions about that. Um, but one area of caution, uh, going too early can be fatal. Uh, so I'll give you an example. At Elon, we had the opportunity. We were doing great. And it was 99, 2000. And then we got approached by uh, this new partnership. Yeah, it was a, sort of the dream team, right? It was, uh, it was uh, Masa, Masayoshi san from Japan, uh, Massier from France, and Murdoch. Uh, who got together as part of the dream team, right? And they say, we will go in 50-50, we'll provide all the money, and we want to go to Europe, Australia, Japan, and just, you know, cover the planet, basically, after that. You can't say no to that. We, we did it. Uh, I was incredibly excited. I was, you know, traveling all over the world. But the truth is, uh, you know, and then 
the crash came. And all those companies, uh, which just about ready to go public in their local markets, did not make it. Um, Japan worked out well. We actually sold Japan, made money. But the others did not work out. Uh, and what that did was really take our eye off the ball of the U.S. Companies suffered for that. Um, so sort of you know, got that drilled into our, our brain. You know, there's a time when your company here needs all its attention, um, but there's definitely the right time, time to go. I think you got to get strong partners um, to try to, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, shuffle off some of the risk. And, and definitely, in the case of someone like China, you really have to get the right partners. Uh, but we know those are key markets that we need to get into. Well, and it's interesting on China, the other very different piece of it, we've talked about it, but I hate to make blanket statements, but I will. Every single major Internet acquisition by a U.S. company in China has thus far failed. Now, that's a remarkable statistic because there's some great U.S. companies uh, in the Internet business, and every one of them fails. Uh, and so it puts a premium on getting started earlier than what might ordinarily be the case in China uh, at a very grassroots level just because you don't have the luxury of history as any guide, and it always is in some ways, a year or two down the road to buy your way into the Chinese market. Uh, so when I was over there two weeks ago, uh, I always meet with entrepreneurs. And as I said, we have uh, seven partners in Beijing and Shanghai. There were at least a dozen Facebook knockoffs that I saw uh, or heard about when I was in China already. And you can imagine the number of YouTube knockoffs and so on. That's just the environment. And every one of them wants to build a product, get to the market, and then sell it to the U.S. company. So something's going to give. And I think for something like Prosper, how we think about the different markets internationally, country by country, when do we get in on a grassroots basis, where do we partner, this has become an incredibly complex part of the yep. overall equation. Yep. So I'm going to take questions. I know we're going to have, uh, we have about 10 minutes. I have one question before I take the questions. A uh, lot of students in the audience. You're a highly successful entrepreneur, and Prosper is uh, off to an incredible start. What advice, if you could <clears throat> give the perfect advice to undergrad and grad students in terms of what should their first four or five years out of school look like? What kinds of jobs? What kind of experience? What yeah. would you say? Um, boy, uh, so I probably wouldn't have started. And definitely don't go into venture capital. I can promise <laughs> you that. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have started Elon if it wasn't for one guy saying just the right thing. It was Jim Collins. He was a professor at Stanford. And he said, you know, cut the lifeboats. And, uh, you know, it's as simple as that. Uh, right now, your risk profile is about as low as it's going to get. It's only going to get worse. Um, you can fail a couple times. And, uh, it's funny, a lot of Stanford students, you know, they'll actually get risk averse when they probably have the lowest risk profile of, of anybody. Because if it fails, you can always go get a job. So it's, I, I think it's, it's start out now. You know, just start hacking away. And it's a great time. This is the time you want to be starting businesses. The world is in complete flux. The Internet thing is just starting. Um, and money's out there like crazy. So. And so my two cents, uh, I went to Stanford as an undergrad, but I went to uh, business school at Harvard. And at Harvard, everyone talked about go work for a large company for a couple years, work in an industry that you're passionate about, get five to seven years of experience, uh, 
if you want to really do it right. And what I can tell you all is uh, the very best thing you can do if you're passionate about a couple startup-like opportunities or you find a young startup in an industry you love, just go do it. Don't try to manage your career. Don't think about getting the big company experience uh, because you can fail. And the great <laughs> thing is if you do a good job and it's an admirable failure, uh, that experience is better than any big company Absolutely. experience that you can possibly have. With that, we'll take some questions. And right here, question number one. Actually, uh, I was just looking stuff on the internet about uh, your company. And you guys have a competitor in uh, Zopa.com in England. So they have a very different business model where they actually don't allow people to choose sort of their own investment strategy, but they rather make the strategy for them. So you give them some money, and then they diversify your risk for you. So one question is, why did you choose this model? And two, if you do think about going internationally, um, do you think maybe that model is a little bit better for countries where sort of trust is not really uh, built up for Because internationally, at least in markets like Eastern Europe maybe, or maybe China, you, you know, you don't trust people. Really Did everyone in the back hear the question? If you would paraphrase it, Go ahead, Chris. Uh, yeah, so it, it's sort of, uh, there's a competitor who has a different business model, and you know, the question is, uh, you know, how, is, how does it compare to ours, right? Um, sort of what? Sort of why did you choose your model of allowing people right. to make their choice rather than diversifying their support? Great question. So, and by the way, when I went to Stanford in 91, you couldn't get these real-time questions like this. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot easier. Um, yeah, so it's Zopa is the competitor. They've, they've picked a model where they are making credit decisions. Our analysis in the U.S. was what two things. One, we thought that violates Web 2.0, free markets, libertarian paternalism, that people should be able to do whatever they do. Uh, anybody should be able to make a listing. What Zopa will do is say, you're okay, you're okay, you're not okay. You don't get in. Um, that's just a bank. So what, what are you bringing to the table that's different? Um, the other thing is in the regulatory analysis, that looks and smells like a security, which is going to get you in trouble with the SEC or some of the state uh, agencies. So the regulatory analysis in the U.S., very different from the U.K., uh, we think doesn't allow that. And in fact, they've been trying to launch here, and they were denied approval in California. They were trying to do an end run around uh, the SEC. won't bore you with the details. But basically, they're shut down, and now they have to do a di different strategy. And again, it's sort of that country risk of taking one model and then try to bring it here. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, we, we think this is the right model for a lot of reasons. And, and we, would, we would hope we could bring this model to any country. But I think the same lesson is, you know, if uh, Chinese authorities think that's a problem and we need to be sort of moving more towards paternalism, uh, you know, you'll have to face that. Um, the good thing about the American capital markets are, is that it's an incredibly efficient capital market. The capital markets work so well here. The problem was all in the in-between stuff. So, um, you know, that's why we chose that. We think that's the, uh, the better way to go. We have time for a couple more questions, and right here. Um, first of all, I just want to say that I read about Prosper a few months ago. And I thought it was a fantastic oh, Thank you. I'm very excited about it. Thank you. Um, my question pertains to fraud. Um, many people said, PayPal won because they were always able to uh, stay ahead of the scammers, but they were never the worst at fighting fraud. Um, where are you um, in, in the fighting fraud in this new sort of niche business, and how are your competitors dealing with fraud? Yeah, the question is about fraud and what are we doing about fraud. Um, yeah, this is something, I mean, you just saw today, right? You know, E-Trade, Ameritrade got hit big time. 
So even the guys that have been at it for a long time are getting hit all the time, you know. And we definitely get hit. We see it, you know, coming in. I think so far we've been successful in stopping it. But probably the way things go, I mean, if you look at eBay's experience, they're sort of when they started out, they got hit a little bit. And then when they started taking off, boy, they really got hit. You know, it's sort of then the whole world is targeting you. Uh, and there's some really sophisticated folks out there. The good news is there's a lot of good technologies now uh, that are emerging, a lot of companies that specialize in this. Uh, that we can kind of layer on. So we've sort of taken the stuff we knew at Elon. Uh, Fidelity is an investor. They've been very helpful in security. We have the head of trust and safety at eBay is on our advisory board, who is ex-law enforcement. That's been helpful. We, we sort of learn from the PayPal experience, get uh, relations with the, uh, the authorities fast. So we've had meetings with the FBI, Secret Service that we're going to be meeting with. And, and that's good because they can help you uh, that also helps your regulatory uh, analysis because, you know, you're sort of cooperating. Uh, you know, you look responsible. So, uh, but it's a constant battle. And, and boy, anytime you think you got that nailed, you're probably going to get, you know, you're going to get uh, hit. Um, but, uh, but we figure there's always going to be some, and we need to absorb it. PayPal has about a 25-bit uh, fraud rate. That's probably acceptable levels and probably what you, what you should expect to see there. Um, and that's, by the way, on average, you get hit about 7% attempts of fraud. So the idea is hopefully you're catching, you know, the, the vast majority of that. So. Good. We have time for a couple more questions right here. Chris, have you given any thought to applying this concept of venture capital markets for funding startups? Put Jim out of business? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good uh, idea. That's yeah, you know, venture capital. Yeah, fundamentally, there, uh, and I think, what was that, road capital? I think there were some early attempts at it. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly, yeah, we think the, uh, the model is extendable to, uh, right now we're unsecured credit, you know, collateralized credit, uh, small businesses, uh, and, you know, equity. I, I think there's no reason, maybe even other products like, uh, you know, you could see, and these are some opportunities out there, I think, uh, risk products, insurance type products, right? Again, a really, you know, regulatory complex area, why can't you chunk that up and send it directly to people? Those are all things waiting to be done. Um, so, yeah, lots of good opportunity in financial services. Absolutely. There was a question in the back here. I can imagine the tough challenge of building a business is on the lender side. Uh, what is the, how do you deal with a lender who might worry about whether you'll get paid and whether you guys will still be around as the loan gets older? Yeah. Um, first, uh, whether they worry about us being around. So we did make arrangements, you know, if the company... Uh, you know, doesn't move forward, uh, there's always somebody to handle the asset. The good news about loans is they're assets and they can be bought and sold uh, and then people will be, you know, covered there. Um, but I think the answer to uh, sort of the risk return equation is really just it's transparency. Uh, any market works on that. So we just have to be just unbiased and, and just show all the data. We just started something this last week. Uh, we try to do a code push every four weeks or so. Um, we just started ranking groups, so now they have like a five-star ranking to a one-star ranking for groups, sort of a collective, and that's additional information people, uh, people like. But uh, to your earlier point, you know, we, we always thought, gee, it's going to be, the hard part is raising money. In fact, I think we've come to realize that actually, it's, if you can get the listings, you'll get the money. There's so much money out there. Uh, people look at this as an asset class. The money will find you, and I think that's the eBay experience, you know, if you get the... Uh, the buyers will get the sellers. I guess that's what they say, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, which has been a little bit of a surprise for us, I think. Good, right here. Um, 
Um, can you talk more about your training in using the cross-form model in the field of microfinance? Sort of like, uh, how do you bridge American people to lend money to maybe farmers in India while they don't really have a common community feeling? Yeah, so we, we don't allow cross-border lending now. Uh, and that, there's no particular reason why. I mean, uh, you, you can do that. It's just sort of what we're focusing on. There is a great company called uh, Kiva.org, yep. which is a nonprofit sort of micro-lending online version. Uh, we like those guys a lot. We've sort of well, you know, worked with them a little bit on some regulatory stuff. Um, but what we, we, we're trying to sort of introduce sort of micro-lending in an American sort of version, if you will. The pure sort of uh, Grameen Bank micro-lending, where you have a collective uh, where you know one borrower sort of is um, uh, depends on other people being able to borrow. We thought that went too far. That sort of uh, we thought Americans are comfortable living in uh, condominiums, but not uh, communes. So they'll share, you know, a homeowner association. They won't share a, a kitchen. Uh, so we thought that just went too far. Um, but I think in the future we want to allow groups that maybe can make that own call. You know, at the end of the day, if we look at our group strategy, we don't uh, see why the groups really can't be microgrammines in a way. And a group leader is, you know, like uh, uh, really, uh, you know, kind of the founder of that micro lending organization. That ultimately makes sense to us. So, you know, more to come. We have time for one more question over here. Yeah. Uh, why did Muhammad Yunus uh, win the Nobel Prize and you didn't? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's an awesome guy, man. That he's guy amazing. is amazing. No. He is. He's really done. He really was the guy that opened this up, and I think, and there's so many models that he's spawned. But, but boy, boy, thank you for even suggesting yeah. something like that. Good but, question. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's a what he's done there is just tremendous. So yeah. tremendous. I think uh, before I cold call Tom Byers, uh, I, Tom, I'm giving you 30 seconds to think about one last question. Uh, what is really remarkable, and you're seeing it now in the great companies. Uh, Chris and his team from the very beginning were passionate about what the mission of the company really is. This democratization of credit, uh, this is not just a, a fluff phrase. It goes to every interview we have. Uh, when he interviewed venture capitalists, uh, this is just part of the fabric of what we're doing. If you don't fundamentally get excited about providing a far more personal, democratized loan, if you will, and, and credit marketplace for borrowers and sellers, uh, you should go nowhere near this company. This is, this is a mission which I think is really exciting, and I think Chris and the team have done remarkable work in just continuing to hire where that cultural attribute, we've seen some incredibly competent people where culturally it didn't quite fit. They were the wrong people for this company as we try to think about building it. Professor Byers. Is this company going to succeed? Absolutely. And Thank you. Question, uh, who has the best entrepreneurship educators in the world in school? There is absolutely no doubt that Stanford leads the way. There are a lot buying. There's absolutely the case. There are a lot buying for number two. And I would say Harvard Business School is very good as a graduate school. But uh, Stanford stands alone. And I actually really do mean that. Uh, you and Tina and the whole program. Uh, it's, it's amazing what Stanford does. So Chris, thank you very much. Hey, thank you. And uh, Chris is great, so this was a lot of fun.